Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. According to a new report from Food Banks Canada, demand here and across the country soaring up nearly a third in just a year. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. I have secured initial commitments uh, from the top five grocers to take concrete actions uh, to stabilize food prices in Canada. Our question, have you used a food bank? How close are you to cutting back on groceries? There's more demand on food bank at the moment. Governments are overly reliant on these things. Everything has gone up. And as a grocery store owner, it's the shipping cost. The shipping cost has gone up and it makes things so much expensive. Prices are certainly going up for sure. So looking at different ways that you can utilize different food to try to save that money or stretch your dollar a little bit more. I remember the first news story I did on food banks. It was Thanksgiving 1987. I ended the piece with a person in charge saying the goal was that in 20 years, we wouldn't have food banks in Canada. Of course, we didn't achieve that, not even close. And now the need is more acute than ever. This past week, Food Banks Canada released a report showing the number of visits is the highest it's been since they started collecting data in 1989. Our question, have you used a food bank? How close are you to cutting back on groceries? In the last half hour, our AMA is about the Israel-Hamas war. We'll have two experts answering questions. One guest is from an aid organization, the other a former military leader. That's in the last 30 minutes. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Checkup, the podcast. Cross-country checkups live broadcast from October 29, 2023. And speaking of staying on top of what's happening in Israel and Gaza, uh, before we get to our main topic today, let's check in with CBC senior correspondent Susan Ormiston. It's been a long, busy day for her in Jerusalem. It's just after 10 o'clock at night. And uh, and Susan, I know you've been on the road and you've headed into to southern Israel. From your vantage point, do you have a sense of what's happening, what's happened in Gaza today? You know, Ian, I think we have a better sense today of the war in general than we did three or four days ago, because this was the weekend that the war changed. Friday night, overnight here in Israel, we saw a massive bombardment of Gaza. And we learned that, in fact, troops and tanks were had crossed into Gaza. We weren't sure what to make of that, but today it's become much more clear. That ground incursion we heard so much about is on. It's happening. There are troops, tanks, armor in Gaza right now. The Israeli military is saying they are extending their ground operations into Gaza. They are targeting Hamas targets, including uh, hopefully those tunnels, they say, where they claim... Hamas is harboring munitions and control centers and possibly some of those hostages. So I think Israel uh, and Gaza perhaps, but Israel for sure, is now looking at this as a long fight, a long war, a tough war. The prime minister warned that to his country in a statement on Saturday night. And I also was thinking about what the defense minister in Israel said Saturday night. He said that The harder 
Israel hits Hamas, the more willing it will be to negotiate releasing those hostages. So far, that approach, with almost three weeks of bombardment, has not worked. Uh, we've heard about discussions uh, about uh, a, a negotiated release. They have broken down or never got to the point of releasing many of them. Only four of over 220 have been released. And that is one of the factors driving this war. The other, of course, is the ongoing and worsening humanitarian condition inside Gaza. Today, we heard that thousands this morning rushed a warehouse with aid that was uh, meant to be distributed to people in Gaza, particularly in southern Gaza. Cooking oil, uh, wheat, flour, hygiene kits, and the people got in and they took them. The aid agencies, for example, World Food Program uh, and the United Nations Relief Agency, see this as a signal of the desperation there, that in fact the social order is beginning to break down, that after three weeks of near total isolation, bombardment, displacement, hunger, shortages of water, uh, people, certainly shortages of medical care, people have had their limit. They are having extreme difficulty coping, and that's what precipitated this a storm into this warehouse today. And of course, we've heard so much about the fact that humanitarian aid, not enough of it, is coming in through that crossing between Egypt uh, and Gaza. We expect that more may come in this week. We're hearing some discussion about that. But you hear a lot in this country at the moment, and some of that breaks down. So we're not sure if, if in fact, that's going to occur. occur. One more thing today we're keeping our eye on is the claim by Israel that Hamas has got this web of tunnels. We've heard reports of that, that in fact some of the hostages were in there. Some of the released hostages told us that. And they are targeting areas around hospitals, it appears, from activity today, making it extremely precarious for the thousands and perhaps tens of thousands in all the hospital areas who are sheltering there and trying to get medical care. So we understand from some reporting by the Palestinian Red Cross that, in fact, some um, bombardment landed close to Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City, close enough that it shook and damaged some parts of the hospital and sent smoke, choking smoke, into the corridors of some of the hospital. So these are very... Um, precarious situations, certainly we've seen that earlier in the war. I think there is a, a sort of sense here in Israel, at, at least, that this is the beginning of a long phase. The prime minister calls it the second phase, but warns that it will last. CBC senior correspondent Susan Ormiston live for us in Jerusalem. And Susan, thank you very much. And you and I will speak again later tonight on The National. Yeah, thanks, Ian. And also a reminder for those of you watching and uh, listening in the uh, Ask Me Anything in the last half hour of our program, we will have a member of an aid organization that has people in Gaza to talk more about something that Susan touched on, obviously, and that is the humanitarian situation in Gaza. We'll also be talking to a, uh, a former 
senior officer in the Canadian Armed Forces, and he'll talk a little bit about what he's seeing and what he thinks may be happening in terms of the military side of it. That is our Ask Me Anything. You get to ask the questions of those two experts in the last half hour of the program. But our question on the program until then, much different. Have you used a food bank? How close are you to cutting back on groceries as we see food inflation just continue unabated? The rate of change may have slowed down, but still prices much, much higher than they were, say, two years ago. Our number is 1-888-416-8333. You could text us, 226-758-8924. Our text number again is 226-758-8924. Our first caller uh, is in Waterloo, and I will call you Carol because I know you've spoken to our producers and uh, we've decided not, not to use your real name because of uh, the risk your call may have to, to your livelihood. So, using the name Carol, how are you? I'm awesome. Uh, you're a legend. It's an absolute pleasure to be here and uh, partake in this conversation. Thank you very much. Well, that's very, very kind of you. Um, tell me about your situation when it comes to a food bank. Okay, so I haven't uh, had to use a food bank, but mm-hmm. in regards to inflation, specifically um, grocery increases over the past three years, I do work a full-time job. It's in the IT sector. When I negotiated my salary three years ago, it was able to pay all of my expenses uh, in regards to my family. Over those three years, the merit increases, even though my performance has been excellent, has not. they haven't kept up with inflation. They've been less than uh, 2% each year. So it's enabled me to uh, become very creative in regards to what I call uh, my economy. (laughs) I've (laughs) developed a tapestry or a network of cash jobs that I do uh, in addition to my full-time job. Some days I actually work my full-time job and I'll do maybe four to five jobs on the side. I take that cash, and uh, very frequently I go immediately to the grocery store and I buy gro- I buy my groceries with that money. And can I ask you what sort of jobs you do outside of your regular work? Sure, I do um, animal husbandry, animal companionship. I'm a dog walker. Um, yes, <laughs> I'm pretty creative when it comes to to making money for sure. Wow, so you work in the tech sector in the tech hub of Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, and and you're still in a position where you have to among other things, go dog walking in order to help pay the grocery bills. Yes, sir, that is correct. It's because, like I said once again, my company has done very well financially, billions of dollars since I've been with them, but um, the whole trickle-down theory doesn't exist. So <laughs> my team, we're high performers. It's heartbreaking. Um, when the merit increases come in, uh, they are never to what we to um, what performance is, and it's. Uh, I know I'm not the only person, um, so I've had to be very creative. And actually, I'm grateful um, that I am able to afford groceries. I'm grateful that necessity has allowed me to evolve as a person to take on more work. Um, to uh, develop the internal resources it takes to increase um, the hours that I'm working. I'm over 50 years old now. I've never worked as hard. I've never worked as many hours. I've never had to be this resourceful. Um, I'm actually a single mother. I have my children every second week. On the weeks that I don't have them, I don't buy meat for myself. I Mm. don't buy any prefabricated food and nothing pre-made, nothing that's like, you know, chips or treats like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I eat very cheaply but healthily. I eat a lot of roasted vegetables, bag of potatoes, a bag of onions, a bag of peppers. You can do marvelous things with that kind of thing. Um, so I economize in a lot of different ways to be able to, to um, you know, cope with the inflationary pressure. 
And do you think that there's, and it sounds to me like the answer is probably no, uh, Carol, but do you think there's a scenario here where you may end up having to go to a food bank to supplement what you're feeding yourself and your kids? Ian, um, I will continue to seek additional employment before I do that. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm a very independent person, a very proud Canadian, grateful that even though I'm struggling, I'm grateful for what I have. I feel contextually for sure um, I'm I'm very fortunate. I know uh, internally my own resources I've had to grow and grow again. When they say dig deep, I've done that millions of times now, it seems. But I'm just, I'm I'm grateful that I'm able to do it, to provide for my family. Um, It it takes sacrifices, but honestly, uh, in this day and age, it's, it's something that I feel is a necessity, right, as a parent, for sure. And we are grateful for your call. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Cross Country Checkup. We are live here from CBC Vancouver. Have you ever used a food bank? How close are you to cutting back on groceries? And keep in mind, those are sort of two related but uh, but slightly different themes for calls. So like Carol, for example, somebody who doesn't contemplate going to a food bank but certainly has changed the way, first of all, she pays for her groceries and also what she buys at the grocery store. So we're interested in hearing those calls and also very interested in hearing from someone who's been going to a food bank, what that experience is like, particularly if you have gone to a food bank for the first time in the last couple of years. Well, speaking of food banks, Newfoundland is one of the provinces where demand for the food banks keeps on growing. Josh Smee is the executive director of Food First NL a nonprofit focused on improving food security, and we've reached him in St. John's, Newfoundland. Hi, Josh. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Your organization published a report this past June called Rethinking Food Charity, and one of the major recommendations is the province should aim to get rid of food banks and focus on income support instead. What is the the argument that supports that suggested move? I think uh, calling back to uh, what you just said at the beginning of the show, when you uh, were covering this in 1987 and the person running the food bank said in 20 years, we shouldn't be here. That's still true, right? We were in a situation where we have a charitable service largely funded by donations uh, that's filling a, a gap or trying to fill a gap in our social safety net. And it's just not sustainable. You know, looking at these numbers, no social service could sustain 30% growth in demand year on year. Uh, and we also know that um, food banks and, and programs like that are only reaching the, the tip of the iceberg. So for every one person who comes through those doors, we know there's probably eight or nine more food insecure folks who are not accessing those programs. And actually, Carol's story uh, just before me here was really, I think, uh, that was a really good example of what food insecurity can look like, where folks are are taking on extra work, maybe they're leaning on friends and family, but we know that there is just no way that food charity can fill that gap. Uh, and we know also that governments are paying for this anyways. They're just paying for it in different places. They're paying for it at the other end in healthcare costs and many other costs to, to government systems that result from people going hungry. And so when you look at it that way, And when you look at what the data says about what actually reduces food insecurity, it's uh, it's not food programs, it's cash transfers, it's getting income to the folks who need it the most. And that really has to be the the objective here uh, of our of advocacy work, while at the same time trying to make the food charity system work as well as it can, while it's the, the main thing that we've got. 
You know, Josh, as you set that out, it's almost irrefutable, right? That uh, giving coupons, let's say, or or cards to buy food as opposed to having to line up at a food bank uh, is not only a more efficient way of doing things, but also in the long term, the the, the benefit besides making people healthier and perhaps giving them more dignity, maybe, um, is also the idea that they'll they'll be healthier. That's the intellectual argument. But what have you heard back from governments um, after your organization's report came out about what they consider at least the practicalities of that? You know, I was in a, a panel discussion or watching a panel discussion just a couple of days ago where our premier said something I think that was really on the nose here. And he, and he said one of the challenges about investing in the, in the social determinants of health, things like food security, uh, is that there's no ribbon to cut. Right. Uh, and I think that's that's really an important thing to think about is that where are the the politics here that it is really challenging to be in a position of working to change our social benefit system. It's not as politically attractive. You definitely get pushback, too, from constituents who who are worried or about handouts or mm-hmm. about uh, the, the undeserving poor. Like that attitude is there. Politicians are very sensitive to it and, and they'll get lots of phone calls. But really, this is a question of politics, right? Like the data is very clear about what needs to happen here. This is not um, as complicated of an issue as some other ones. You know, when we talk about, say, the housing crisis or mental health and addictions, those are all very multi-layered things that will take years of of systems to build to change them. This is not that. Uh, You know, governments could substantially remove demand for, for food banks and food charities tomorrow. Uh, It's a political question. It's a question of political will. And uh, I think we do see that uh, there isn't enough pressure on governments, either from from their citizens or also from programs like mine and other food programs to to make that change happen. It needs to be a focus of advocacy. And and we, I think, are starting to see uh, when that advocacy makes a difference. We're live with Josh Smee, the Executive Director of Food First NL, and our question on cross-country checkup today, have you used a food bank? How close are you to cutting back on groceries? Our number is one 416 or you can connect with us by going to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Um, Josh, give me a sense of some of the challenges that food charities in your province are dealing with right now. So I think for food charities here, it's the same as anywhere else in Canada. It's really a perfect storm, right? So the increase in food prices that we're seeing is bringing more people to the door. The data is very clear about that. Um, at the same time, uh, it's making uh, making the cost of doing business for food charities go up at the same rate, right? Food charities are also uh, at times buying food and it's reducing the amount of food that people have to donate. So food charities are being squeezed from both sides uh, by food prices right now. Uh, and it's it's really putting people in the position of making what what I think are really morally impossible choices. You know, do you cut back what you're giving? Do you cut back who you're serving? Um, no one wants to do these kind of things. And and I can say our own organization, we ran an emergency for food service for, for three years uh, and nothing kept me up at night more than asking my employees to make those kind of choices. In many cases, though, food charities are being run by volunteers and, and folks who don't necessarily have the same support systems as an employee would have. And they're being forced into a position of of making these kind of choices about 
who gets how much help. And it's it's incredibly difficult. And the the growth that we're seeing in, in usage means that that's only going to get worse. And, and the, there's no sign right now that food price pressures are going to abate. And it's been many years since uh, social benefits were even catching up to inflation. And so uh, we've got a big deficit to deal with. And governments have been leaning on on the food charity sector to to provide this support. Josh, really nice speaking with you. Thanks so much. Josh Smee, the executive director of Food First NL, and we reached him in St. John's, Newfoundland. Coming up, do you have any shortcuts or hacks when it comes to grocery shopping? We'll have a personal finance writer who'll join us with her suggestions. Stay tuned. And a reminder, our question today, have you used a food bank? How close are you to cutting back on groceries? Our phone number, one 888 Our text number, 226 758 8924. And I always mention AirCheck. That's worked out really well for us. People can go there, cbc.ca slash AirCheck, and either make a comment or say, hey, we'd like to be on the program. Trina Reburn from Vanier, Ontario, said she wanted to make this comment. I have to use the food banks as I have a child with autism who's nonverbal. I'm paying full value rent and crazy hydro bills. By the time I pay all my bills, there's no more money. My food bank, I find it very discriminatory. I have a son with a peanut allergy, and each time I go, I end up with peanut products. They uh, they don't take the, court, uh, take the courtesy to take them out. I have reported them. Monique Ashby on the former Twitter, now called X, I'm using the food bank. I still buy stuff at the grocery store as they don't have everything at the food bank. I'm on ODSP, Ontario Disability Support Program. You don't get much money on ODSP. And Teresa Lubowitz, also on the former Twitter, uh, says, despite living in a pretty wealthy area, food bank just opened down the street. Third one within a 10-minute walk. Huge need across the country. People cannot keep up with grocery prices. Okay, let's go to Calgary now. Sean Jackson is on the phone. Hi, Sean. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, what's your uh, situation in terms of uh, using a food bank? Well, I'm a senior, I'm disabled, I'm a veteran, and my pension is eighteen seventy one a month. I pay my rent, which actually just went up this month, $171 for affordable housing based on my pension. There's no math logic in that one. I couldn't figure out. If it wasn't for the Veterans Association Food Bank of Calgary that keeps us veterans alive, we would be starving to death. How long? Paying my rent, paying my bills, there's nothing left. How long have you been going to the food bank? Well, at least a year. Well, yeah. since I had a stroke and totally permitted me from working any any type of work now, so hmm. with the health issues, so we have no choice. The veterans look after veterans. We will not go to a civilian food bank. It's for families and such. So veterans look after veterans. But like many other veterans and seniors, we just don't have the money left in our pensions anymore, especially with rent increases and such. And what's it for, for the people who are listening who haven't been in this situation, Sean, what's it like going to the food bank, uh, you know, needing the food bank? Well, it's... Uh, it takes away your independence. I wish I could work again. I've worked all my life until situation came up that I was no longer able to now. Um, I, I sucked up my pride. I had to. It's either that or starve. I will not stand out on the street and beg. 
I will not uh, be a thief. I will not steal. I will not do anything anything illegal to obtain food. So if it wasn't for the Veterans Association Food Bank here, we would have nothing. Yeah. Sean, thank you very much for calling. Interesting to, to hear your story, and I'm sorry you're in that situation. Well, the same as many other veterans. So I wish people would just phone their MPs like the Americans phone their Congress and Senators for anything and just say, hey, how about treating the veterans a bit better? Because that's what it takes, even for this crisis of the food. It takes people to actually phone the government and say something. That's the only way they listen. They want to well, jeopardize their next re-election. Well, you got your message out on national radio, Sean, so, so thank you for calling. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you for your time. This is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing, and we're live on CBC Radio Network, CBC News Network, and various online platforms like GEM and uh, also CBC Explore. Have you used a food bank in particular in the last couple of years as food prices have been soaring? How close are you to cutting back on groceries, making big decisions about what perhaps you'll no longer buy? Or as we heard with our first caller, uh, she buys meat when uh, she is has her kids, which is once every two weeks. And when she doesn't have her kids on those other weeks, she really, really cuts back. Our number is one 416 Our text number is 226-8924. We have uh, another call from Calgary. Diana Bliss uh, connected with us via AirCheck. Hi, Diana. Hi. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm very well. Um, I just wanted to relate the experience that I had going to a food bank when my children were young, because when I went, it was probably the most humiliating experience of my life, Um, because when I went, it was the Calgary Food Bank, and I was in a lineup for well over two hours, Hmm. almost two and a half, and we were all standing and when I got to the window, they said, well, you for- I forgot to bring my, my children's health care cards. And they said they needed that in order to prove that I had children. And so there I was with, had stood there all this time. And the place was just the most dismal place I had ever seen. Hmm. It was all cement. It was dreary. The lighting was very poor. And we were crowded into this this tiny, tiny space and forced to line up. And it was just, it was horrible. And it, it made me think that of a, just remembering that, was, like, I don't like remembering it because it was so humiliating. Yeah. And I had to leave empty handed because I didn't have their health care cards. I'd left them at home. I feel like there are people who are listening right now who work with food banks, and I certainly invite them to call us at one eight 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 four one six eight three three. who I hope would tell you that that is, A, not the experience you should have, and B, not the experience you would have modern day at their food bank. Um, now, you use the past tense, so did you get into a situation where you no longer had to go to a food bank? I turned to my family, mm-hmm. and and I, which I didn't want to do. Like I, I don't like doing that, and partly because they put conditions, and and you know, like families are complicated, and mine is complicated. So <laughs> I, I didn't want to go there. Yeah, but um, it it just was really really hard to go to the food bank, and I just never could go back. It was mm-hmm. just too humiliating. Well, like I, I said, I, I, 
I hope and I assume that it's different. Diana, this question may be too personal and you don't have to answer it, but when you talk about conditions that your family put on, uh, you know, the food they would give you, can you give me an example of that? Um, Well, my mother's um, conditions would be that I had to treat my daughter better than my sons and, Mm. and let her have clothes that were like I had to let her have my daughter more than my sons and uh-huh. you know that kind of thing she was a, an emotional blackmailer and, and and it was hard to deal with her yeah. I'm sorry I'm so, sorry to hear that and I you know the last thing you need in a situation where you're turning to a food bank to get uh, food for your kids is to have anybody put uh, put conditions like that, that kind on of pressure a, yeah. that's that's why I didn't want to yeah to have to deal with that okay. sort of thing. Well, Diana, but, um, I'm, I'm happy. So it, it sounds though like many years later, you're 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 not dependent on food banks or your family. Presumably, things are better now. They are um, partly because um, my husband was able to find work, and, and we became more dependent on on his income. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when he died, he left a pension, and we. Mm-hmm because he was good with money when we had it. But um, it also made me realize that that part of the problem is that we don't see the poor as, be, as qualifying for dignity. Yep. And that, that for me is an issue, that they're not, they don't qualify for good housing because they're poor, they don't deserve it. They don't qualify for, for, if they have to go to a food bank, they don't qualify for dignity. It's only something that's available to the wealthy. Yeah. And it, it, I've, it, you know, it's one of the things that now that I'm retired, I find myself fighting for because of all of these experiences with food banks and with housing that I, I, I don't tolerate anymore. Good, good. <laughs> I mean, unless somebody is being, you know, um, aggressive uh, in, in a, you know, and even then it's complicated. But anyway, people deserve dignity. No question about that. We wouldn't expect someone to wait two hours in line at a supermarket. And uh, I'm sorry you went through the experience you did many years ago. Diana, thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank this, you for listening. This is Cross Country Checkup and our number is one 416 Have you ever used a food bank? How close are you right now to having to cut back on groceries in order to make ends meet. The Consumer Price Index from earlier this month showed that the cost of groceries in September was almost 6% higher compared to the same month a year ago. And so we've been talking about food inflation for a long time, like a year and a half, two years, and it's still, I mean, that's a big number, almost 6%, 5.8 is the exact number. So what can you do to cut costs? We've reached Carrie Taylor, a personal finance writer and host of the Cash and Carry podcast. Hi, Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. We uh, are talking about the story today because a report by Food Banks Canada says that they're having the highest number of visits to food banks across the country since they've started keeping records back in 1989. You write about finances. You have, as I mentioned, a podcast. Uh, what sort of feedback are you getting from people when it comes to uh, their budgets and food? Well, it's a struggle. We're looking at increased housing. We're looking at inflation. We're looking at food prices. There's a lot of struggling out there. And just listening to your callers, it's really becoming apparent that this increased use of food banks shows that Canadians who were doing well or okay before are definitely struggling now. 
There are all kinds of ways, I guess, for people to cut grocery bills. And some might think that one way to do it is just to go from store to store to store and be like really strategic about what you get. I want to play you a clip from Ray Harris. He's a data analyst in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And he went to various grocery stores in his city to see if there was a major difference in prices between each one. But but his results were kind of mixed. Let's listen to what he had to say. I was surprised. Like I, I did think the answer would be go here for produce, go here for boss goods, go here for meat. And, you know, if you had the time and you had the means to do so, driving around town could work out for you to kind of get the best deal overall. Um, and that was my theory that proved untrue. That wasn't the case. You would you would really have to say, I'm going to get carrots and meat here. I'm going to get the rest of my produce here and whatnot. There was not a silver bullet to grocery shopping. Carrie, I know that for some people, if money is so tight, then maybe they, they want to invest the, the time and effort to go to each of those stores and get exactly what is the cheapest. But, but overall, you know, with people with busy lives, even if they are on, on limited budgets and they're trying to stretch it, what would you say to them in terms of that particular approach to trying to save money? There isn't a lot of variability in the pricing across grocery stores these days. It's really, really challenging. And to add to that, you have to travel around and spend money on uh, fuel or bus fare to get around. So that's a really, really tough point. So I've got some tips that I I think could help. All right, then we'd love to hear the tips. (laughs) Okay, let's do this. So there's no one size fits all. Your your colors have very different backgrounds and very different budgets. So with the price of housing and whatnot, we are all struggling in different. Uh, different ways. So your mileage may vary. The first point is unit pricing. The unit price is that little tiny text in the corner of the price tag. And it tells you how much something costs per gram, per liter, or per unit of measure. And this is a very valuable number because it can help you compare different size uh, sizes, different products, and different brands or generics. So sometimes you'll find that the jumbo size costs more than the smaller size per unit. And the brand name actually costs more than the generic. Uh, Sorry, the generic costs more than the brand. Yeah, so both of those things, both of those things are so counterintuitive, right? I I have definitely reached for the generic without even checking the unit. It wouldn't even occur to me to check the unit price because I would assume that it's cheaper uh, or that the jumbo size is cheaper. So that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I find it all the time. So if you watch these little numbers, it's really good math. The number two is store brands. Now, we all have this opinion that store brands can cost less, and they often do. You can often save about 15 to even 30% if it's on sale. But again, look at the unit price. Now, the third one is something a lot of us don't do because, you know, we have busy lives. We just go through the checkout aisle. But try watching the price scanner. The Retail Council of Canada has this voluntary code. And it's often displayed on the inside of the store at the cashier or on that little table where we put our phones. And what the code says is if a product misscans and it costs less than $10, you get it for free. Hmm. If it costs over $10, you get a $10 discount. Now, a lot of the cashiers aren't trained on this. So if you find a misscan, don't give them a hard time. Instead, mention it and then go to customer service to get your discount. I have never heard that before. I've never heard of the scanning price accuracy code. And uh, boy, like I, I almost can't wait to go to the supermarket uh, in order to put that in action. And as you say, very kindly, you know, don't sort of heap uh, unkindness on the on the cashier, but definitely know your rights. The scanning price accuracy code. That is fantastic. Uh, anything else you wanted to add? 
Yeah, food waste. I mean, we can't control food prices. We can't control inflation or shrinkflation. But we have control over how much food we waste. Canadian households, on average, waste about $1,300 a year. And that's outstanding considering the price of food today. So if you have some leftovers, put them in a glass bowl in your fridge and have a use-up day. Make wraps or stir fries or stews and soups so you can, you know, really stretch that dollar. Now, I heard one of your callers talk about the price of meat. And yeah, protein's just off the chart expensive. So, you know, we can augment that with beans and legumes. But I recently discovered this thing called textured vegetable protein. It's a gluten-free, low-carb soy flour. And there's about 13 grams of protein in a 25-gram serving. So it's really good math if you can add this to your meals and get more protein. You are a very good communicator, and more than anything, I've actually learned uh, stuff listening to you, Carrie. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. It was a pleasure. Carrie Taylor, personal finance writer and podcaster. In a few moments, we're going to get the perspective from Canada's independent grocers. We'll ask them about the rise in grocery prices and what they might be able to do about it. Our question today, have you used a food bank? How close are you to cutting back on groceries because of the price? Call us at 1-888-416-8333 or text us at 226-758-8924. Uh, Maurice Coombs is in Sault Ste. Marie. Hi, Maurice. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. And so you were at a food bank as recently as last week. Uh, if you don't mind, tell me about that experience. Uh, yes, uh, the food bank here is available every two months for uh, about a bag or two of groceries. And uh, I got uh, two bags. And some of the meat prices that were, uh, the meat packages were uh, outdated by a year expired last December. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm on a limited income of flight attendant disability of 600 a month, and ODSP pay my rent of 214 and give me a check of 319 a month. So it's pretty limited to what I can do, you know. We heard a woman a little earlier from Calgary who said years ago when her kids were little, she had uh, an experience at a food bank she didn't like, waiting two hours, and because she didn't have her kids' health card, she said she couldn't get any, any food. What about for you going to the food bank? Do you feel like you're, you're treated with dignity? Uh, yes, I could say that. Uh, in my case, I'm treated respectfully at, uh, at size, and uh, I'd say that uh, when I went there, things were uh, copacetic, no, no problems, uh, took them 10 minutes and they'd seen people at the door and that was it. Hmm. And uh, the, with you, is it, because it sounds like there's some structural issues here with your pension and your, your disability uh, payments, um, where, you know, it's difficult to, to make ends meet. Um, I assume that it's gotten tougher. It has for pretty well everybody, but you tell me in the last uh, year and a half or so? Uh, yes, I'd say about a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah. All right, and, uh, yeah. especially the last uh, three or four years, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think the Trudeau government has made took the right step in making the initiative of talking with the corporate donors, uh, corporate uh, supermarkets to mm-hmm. get the prices down. If if that's possible, it'll be something to look forward to. And uh, so I think he's made the right move, and uh, we hopefully we'll uh, benefit from it. Well, we'll be talking to somebody from from the industry with representing independent grocers in just a moment. So we certainly will put that to him in terms of what they ought to be doing to uh, try to keep the prices down. Maurice, thank you very much for calling. Yes, thank you, sir. 
This is Cross Country Checkup. Have you used a food bank? How close have you been to cutting back or are you on cutting back on groceries because of the rising prices? 1-888-416-8333 or you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Lori Batten is in Sambro, Nova Scotia. Hi, Lori. Ian, how are you doing? I'm doing well. So I see here you haven't used a food bank, but you have, according to my notes here, cut back uh, on grocery expenses uh, by quite a bit. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I'm on my kind of second mat leave. And for us, you know, the mat leave hasn't changed too much. I've got a two and a half year old and I've got an eight month old. And so, um, yeah, the money hasn't changed so much with respect to what you get for that. Um, So I think just the way we spend our money for groceries has changed. And it might be sort of one of those kind of positive things that have come of COVID-19 was um, the grocery pickups. And so for me, um, you know, rather than hauling a toddler and a baby around a grocery store, trying to mentally tabulate what my grocery bill is going to be, it's been very much on like planning and meal prepping and kind of getting a better sense of what we should eat during the week, but doing it all online so that once I get to the final thing, I can see what's all in my cart. And if it's over a certain threshold each week or each, you know, every four or five days that we go to the grocery store, I just eliminate everything that is kind of non-essential. And so for me, it's like not only meal planning and kind of figuring out what can last us a couple of days um, and like getting rid of all the indulgences, but, you know, getting someone to do the shopping for me while I can see everything that's in my cart. (laughs) Yeah. So you mentioned that you're on mat leave. How many kids do you have? Uh, So I'm I'm second. Uh, So I've got a two and a half year old and I've got an eight month old. And and so... Do you worry at all that, uh, you know, being forced to cut back in terms of what you buy at the grocery uh, might mean that your kids aren't getting what they need? Absolutely. I mean, I think for us, it's a big, um, you know, for us, groceries are kind of a funny deal anyways. I'm a vegan and my partner is a meat eater. And so we're raising our kids kind of vegetarian. But, Mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to meal planning, we try to plan for things that are, you know, we can, you know, have fajitas and then have a meat option and say chickpeas or tofu or something like that. But now it's more like, okay, if my toddler doesn't like this this day, we're not going to try it for at least, you know, a month or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, you know, pasta as is kind of a prime example for me growing up, it was like, you could get two cans of pasta sauce, two for a dollar. And now it's like two fifty is a good deal, which is just outrageous. Wow. So I think like when we find the deals, we're just kind of grabbing it and hoping hmm. that our kids like it and having kind of multiple meals to make sure that there isn't food waste, but also that, you know, we can stretch a dollar as far as we can. Um, because, you know, my kids are pretty close in age, but, you know, my mat leave rate hasn't changed between those two too much, but mm-hmm. the food prices have. And oh, so- right, right. Of course. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. The, in- the income is, is it, first of all, less than you normally would make. It's the same as it was for the first kid, but the prices are so much higher, right? Exactly, and we've got more mouths to feed. And, you know, it comes down to things like, you know, I never really considered formula, but we're kind of wrapping up breastfeeding, and it's like, you know, to get them to sleep through the night, it might be nice maybe to have formula <laughs> as an option. But now I'm like, oh, my God, I would never even think about something that isn't, you know, a necessity. And mm-hmm. we're, you know, we are still breastfeeding. It's like... And it's kind of one of those nuanced things, but anything that isn't, you know, essential kind of goes out the window in this circumstance. Hey, here's Um, a question out of left field, Lori, but let me just ask it. We're, we're two days away from Halloween and with little kids, like you, you, you understand how enchanting, well, we all do, but you really do, how enchanting Halloween is. So given how tight budgets are, what's your strategy for, for buying treats? Well, so that's funny because we were just at, before we 
got home and saw this segment was on, uh, we were just at the grocery store and we were sort of laughing. Like, you know, we're outside of Halifax. We're in a small community. We might take our kids to four or five houses in the neighborhood, but really, like, they're so young. And I just got finished saying to my partner, like, we don't really get that many kids. Maybe we go get one of those, like, a couple of those $2 packages of Smarties at the dollar store and Mm -hmm. call it a day because we won't get that many kids. But, you know, I also said for the, you know, maybe we get 10 children and we go buy 10 chocolate bars and Mm -hmm. it's still kind of a cost savings in that respect. I mean, my kids would like it. They'd have a treat (laughs) for a change. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to say something that's going to shock you. There are a few neighborhoods in Vancouver, like the one that I'm in. We get about, and this this number is right. It sounds like a mistake, but it's right. We get about 1,500 kids on Halloween night. So I haven't yet bought uh, treats, but uh, I'm, uh, that's my job for tomorrow. I'm Monday off. So, um, I got to figure this out, Lori. <laughs> I mean, you might as well just turn your light off and say, no, I can't no, afford I, to put a lean out yeah, on my home for yeah, Halloween. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, although it is adorable, all the little, and it is little kids overwhelmingly who show up from various neighborhoods. Uh, and it's not, not my house. It's just that it's an area where it's just easy for kids to park and, and get to. Anyway, so be happy that you're not dealing with that. And, uh, and thank you very much for your call. It was really interesting. Yes, definitely. I would just say, too, I mean, and I don't know if it's just kind of a small town kind of community thing, but interestingly, kind of during the throes of COVID um, at our community mailbox, there was kind of, um, you know, nothing sort of official by any means, but a community sort of food bank um, was installed at our mailbox. So anybody who would check their mail, like, take it or leave it if you need a can of soup or if you need a can of beans or whatever, like, it still exists and people kind of take it or leave it as they go. And I don't know if that's something that's popping up across the country. Like a couple of years ago, it was like the free li- little free libraries were on yeah. everybody's front lawn. And that's so exactly us, what, it, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about. That's a, that's a great it, idea. Yeah. And it's right by the mailbox where everybody's um, checking their mail anyway. So it's kind of a cool idea. And for mm-hmm. us, like we, you know, we both have really great jobs when we're both working full time. So we don't want to take, from food banks. Like, I think there are people who need it more than we do. So we're going to just be, you know, as frugal as possible, meal plan as possible. But, you know, where things like that can pop up in the communities where, you know, if you can give a can of beans, give a can of beans. If you need to give a can of tuna, give a can of tuna. Like, it's really cool to see that, like, right next door. Um, So it's really nice. And I hope those things kind of come in conjunction with those little free libraries because it is really nice. And I think, you know, there are people who need it who maybe even want to save face and not go to a food bank. But if you're just checking your mail or happen to be walking down the street, it's kind of a nicety to see. There are a few things I love about this show, and one of them is when somebody mentions an idea, as you just did, that uh, may not exist elsewhere or may not exist in many other places, and uh, you get to spread the word. And, and hopefully, you know, we'll hear that other people in other small or big communities across the country kind of go, yeah, we heard Lori. She's from Sambro, Nova Scotia. She's got this, you know, she has this cool thing going on in her, in her neighborhood with cans of beans and tuna and stuff. So thank you for sharing that. For sure. Thanks, Ian. And uh, yeah, really cool that you're talking about this. And I think, you know, coast to coast, if everybody can kind of share those sorts of tips, it's really nice. And I think, you know, small town to big city, what have you, it's just, it's really cool. And we've all kind of got to rally together. It's post-COVID and everything's changed anyway. So let's just, you know, make our communities better and stronger. Fantastic. I endorse that, Lori. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ian. Take care. Our number here on Cross Country Checkup is 1-888-416-8333. You can also connect with us via cbc.ca slash aircheck. And our question, have you used a food bank or how close are you to cutting back on groceries because prices are so high? Well, as I mentioned, we're going to get 
a voice from uh, the other side, I guess, of the counter, if you want to put it that way, when it comes to, to groceries. Gary Sands is the senior vice president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers. The organization represents thousands of independent grocery stores in Canada. Uh, it does not represent the larger grocery chains like Loblaw, Metro, or Sobeys. Uh, we reached Gary in Scarborough, Ontario. Hi. Hi, Ian. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really happy that uh, you took up our invitation. Now, we're talking about uh, this story this week because of a report a few days ago talking about um, record high number of visits to food banks, 2 million visits this past March alone. Uh, When you hear numbers like that, what's your reaction? It's that uh, it's a collective. I think I speak for all of the 6,900 independent grocers in Canada. We feel the the, the pain uh, that everyone is experiencing who has to go to a food bank. Unfortunately, there's just not much we can do. Uh, we're we're in a tough spot. As a, as you uh, mentioned, I don't represent Bay Street grocers. I represent Main Street grocers, and I can tell you. Those grocers have a symbiotic relationship with their community. They live in the community. They're part of the community. They buy local, um, hire local. So it's 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 a tough thing for, for them to have to see. Um, but again, an independent grocer in Canada, just to inform your, your viewers and listeners, they operate on margins of about 2%. So when you look at all of the increases that we're getting from what we call the suppliers, which your viewers would know as the food manufacturers, but when your suppliers are increasing prices two, three, four, five times a year, uh, sometimes in double digits, if you're on a margin of 2%, you don't have any other option but to pass that increase onto, uh, onto your customer. So a margin of 2%, if I understand correctly, means that, let's say, if a bag of lentils costs, you know, just pick a number, you know, $10, um, the profit margin will be 2% of, of that $10, right? Yeah, overall, you know, some some margins for some products, Ian, will be higher and some lower. The overall margin for an independent grocery in Canada is about 2%. It's very low. I should point out that uh, we did reach out to the Retail Council of Canada. They do represent Canada's larger groceries, uh, but they were not able to provide someone on the show. However, we are talking to Gary Sands live, the Senior Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers. Our question today, have you used a food bank? How close are you to having to cut back on groceries? And our number is 1-888-416-8333. cbc.ca slash aircheck is a way to reach us. Gary, I want to read you a couple of tweets that I got on this topic and, uh, sure. and, and and get your response to it. Um, so here's one, uh, story after story on Canadians not being able to make ends meet, but never does the media call out the corporate greed causing it all. And another tweet, under the guise of quote unquote inflation and transportation costs, the grocery execs gouged and even doubled some items. Why aren't you talking about the real culprits? So Gary, you're one of those real culprits. What would you say to those two people who tweeted those comments? Well, first of all, I, I wish there was an easy uh, solution to this. I wish there was some boogeyman out there we could just point the finger at and say, ah, that's that's who's responsible for this, and, and then we could find a solution. The fact is, you know, we're seeing the same increases in food prices that the corporate uh, chains are seeing. And I have to point out, too, this issue has been investigated by the Dalhousie, by Dalhousie University's Agri-Food uh, Analytics Lab, the House of Commons Agriculture Committee, the Competition Bureau of Canada, all independent, and all have come to the conclusion that there is no evidence of greedflation. And I just hope your viewers understand 
as small town grocers, you know, predominantly, I mean, they are in urban areas too, but these grocers, they're, they're not, they're not gouging, but we are seeing the same increases that the chains are seeing. Now, I can only speak to food in, in terms of food prices, but we are seeing exactly what the chains are seeing. So if there's gouging taking place or greedflation, it certainly is not happening happening with respect to food prices. And I, I just hasten to add to, to people, you know, to understand what has hit the food industry. We've we still have the war in the Ukraine, which is having a seismic impact on the supply chain. We're having lingering labor challenges from COVID. We've had catastrophic flooding in BC and Nova Scotia. We've had wildfires. We've had uh, port strikes, rail strikes. The list goes on and on. And I've said a few times, you know, it's the, it's like the four horsemen of the apocalypse have taken up careers in the food industry. All of those things we can't make go away. It would be easy to point at the corporate chains and say, ha they're responsible. There's just no evidence for it. That's, that's, those are the facts. We only have about 90 seconds left in this segment of the program, Gary. But uh, So picking up on that, the larger grocery chains are being asked to appear at a federal committee and provide a plan to lower grocery prices by November the 2nd. Now, your organization isn't part of that, but given what you just said, um, what are the prospects of there being a plan to, to lower prices? I am as much in the dark about what the chains have in mind as you do. Our concern would be if there's some sort of plan that the chains are going to bring forward uh, that uh, means they're going to be imposing price freezes on their suppliers, on the companies that supply the goods they buy. What does that mean for the independent grocers? Uh, what will that mean for their prices? Will somebody be looking to pick up that slack and pass on uh, those increases till, uh, uh, to the independents? And that's a, that's a real concern. And I just want to quickly point out those 6,900 grocers, there's a lot of them that are in rural and remote communities in this country. So, you know, we're already feeling a disproportionate impact from, from cost increases suppliers are passing on. And I also want to emphasize it's not the fault of the suppliers. We understand what's driving up their costs as, as well. But we're going to be watching very closely what the chains are proposing because we want to make sure that doesn't put the independents in an unfavorable position and the customers that they serve in, a, in an unfavorable position. It is fantastic having your perspective. A lot of interesting stuff there, Gary. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Gary Sands, the Senior Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers. Well, if you're watching on CBC News Network, Rosemary Barton Live is next, and our program will continue on radio right after this. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Hour 2 of Cross Country Checkup live on CBC Radio. We have roughly 30 minutes left on our main topic coming up in our Ask Me Anything segment. We're turning our focus again to the war unfolding in the Middle East. We're going to be joined by two experts to share their perspectives. Scott Clancy, who's been a guest on the program a couple of times in the last month, is a retired Major General with the Canadian Armed Forces and has real insight on military strategy. And Dahlia 
Alakauti is the head of humanitarian affairs with the charity Save the Children. You can actually start calling now if you have an AMA question on the Israel-Hamas war at 1-888-416-8333. You can text us too if you have questions, 226-758-8924. And indeed, those numbers will also allow you to connect with us on our main topic, for which we have a half an hour left, have you used a food bank? How close are you to cutting back on groceries? All right, Marianne has reached us from southeastern British Columbia, and we're not using, Marianne, your full name or location uh, because I see there's a risk uh, to your livelihood in your call. How are you? I'm uh, a little stressed about food prices, actually. Yeah, so so tell me about that. Tell me what impact it's having on, on your life and how you, you know how, what you're doing to get food on the table. Uh, well, it's just me, but I have a lot of bills that have increased dramatically, mm-hmm. and I have three dogs. So today I bought some half-price pork that was going to expire today. And I put that in the pressure cooker with potatoes, and that's for my dogs. I don't eat the meat. Mm-hmm. Um, I've stuck to eggs and tofu and cheese and yogurt. And uh, the only greens I eat are salads. And, um, yeah, I even canceled my trip to the vet for um, booster shots for my dogs. I just can't afford it. Mm. And, and and I see in the notes here, you, you used a food bank a few months ago. I did. Um, I used it a few times, but then the last time I was there, somebody came rushing up to say hi, and, say, and they were a friend of a friend of mine, and I thought, mm, I'm not coming back. I would rather be anonymous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can see where that's tough. Um how, what's your experience? So other than that, which kind of shatters the anonymity that you might feel and you want to feel going to a food bank, but that aside, um, how was it at the food bank in terms of the way you were treated and, and, oh, and was what great. was, yeah, yeah. It was great. Um, they had a big uh, variety of things and, you know, if you get the veggies, then you need to come home and cook them right away and freeze them because they're not going to last that long. Mm-hmm. Um, they were kind of the ones on the shelf that were going to get thrown out soon. It sounds like but, you yeah. become very, very strategic when it comes to what you buy um, and, mm-hmm. and how you prepare it. Uh, were you always like that or is that something that's really changed in the last uh, couple of years? Oh, yeah, it's really changed. Absolutely. I was standing at the meat counter today with a woman who said, I'm considering being a vegetarian and then I go buy the vegetables and it's $5 for a small handful of chard or, and I'm going, well, they're not much better because they used to be a dollar something. Yeah, it is. I mean, sticker shock over and over and over again in the grocery store for sure. Yeah. Yeah, Like eight and $9 for a little package of berries. No, I'm not paying that. So. I have frozen blueberries. I use those. That's my fruit source. Yeah, which is good, right? I mean, uh, yeah. f- frozen, if it's flash frozen, it, it's good. And if they haven't added ton- tons of sugar to it, it's a good thing. Hey, Marianne, thank you very much for calling. Uh, my, oh, and by the way, I'm yes? 73 years old and I have to work more than I've worked in the past several years. Uh, working, like you mean literally at a job? Yes. Oh, that's, you know, that's not... That's unfortunate. So it's because to make ends meet, 
you have, yeah, you have to keep working. What's it like to, to, I mean, it's one thing if you choose at 73 to keep working, what's it like to have to keep working just to get food on your table at 73? Um, well, I've kind of accepted the fact that this is life right now. I've mm-hmm. got my house up for sale. So when I sell that, things will change. Hopefully I can pay off some bills and maybe even take a small trip. <laughs> well, that's nice. You deserve, I'm sure you deserve a small trip. Are you, do you live in a part of southeastern British Columbia where your house should go pretty quickly or, or are you going to have to wait a while, do you think, to get the right price? It looks like I'm going to have to wait a while with the mortgage rates. It's mm-hmm. been on the market for a while and there's not much happening. You're getting squeezed in every direction. Absolutely. Marianne, thank you very much for calling. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. Have you used a food bank? How close are you to cutting back on groceries? Our phone number here on Cross Country Checkup is one eight 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 four one six eight three three three. You can also reach us at cbc.ca slash aircheck. I'm Ian Hanamansing, and we are live in Studio 10 at CBC Vancouver. Uh, let's go to some of our social media uh, or online comments. Uh, Justin Cantafio from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Justin, I know I may have mispronounced your name, but I, I don't have a pronunciation pronunciation guide here. You, you contacted us via AirCheck. I'm the co-founder and president of the Canadian Farmers Markets and the executive director of Farmers Markets of Nova Scotia. Farmers market nutrition coupons have been proven to address the symptoms of food insecurity, provide opportunities for social inclusion and stimulate the economy through supporting local farmers and producers. They've been in circulation in BC since 2012, in Nova Scotia since 2019, and Manitoba since 2020. So farmers market nutrition coupons. Teresa texts us from St. Paul, Alberta. Recently, I was speaking to a volunteer at the local food bank. The demand is so great, they had to get a larger part of the local Manawana Center. They used to get maybe four to five people coming a day. Now it's like 50 people who are coming for food. Jillian Williamson texted us, I want to mention my hack. I use the Too Good To Go app, which saves food from dumpsters. I get my produce and baked goods through this, and it saved me a good amount of money. For instance, I got a box of vegetables for $6 and uh, made soup for five meals and two people. So the Too Good To Go app, I think that is the one that my colleague Richard Grundy was was playing with. And um, he would like, say, yeah, I'll, I'll pay $5 for a bag of uh, mystery stuff at a bakery. And then he'd come back and have a, like a, a roll and a pastry and a donut for me. And it worked out really well for both of us. But more to the point, for people who uh, need to get the proper groceries, it sounds like uh, at least for Jillian, that is a good way to go. Let us know what your hack is. We've heard a couple of good ones so far in the program. one 416 Mary Winters is calling us from Cornwall, Ontario. Hi, Mary. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm fine. You, so you've far, all, the allergies you, have died down, you see? Good. Yeah, I guess that's the advantage of heading into, I mean, I know it's not winter yet, but at least as we head no, into this time of year, yeah. The first of November, yeah. Yeah. pretty well gone. Yeah, the, the blooms are afraid, like, so they all go away and, and you're yes. good. So you volunteer at the St. Vincent de Paul Food Bank in Cornwall, do you? I've been with them for at least 15 years. We started out, we're a Catholic organization. We started out in the basement of a church. Mm -hmm. We have since moved to our own building, which is much, much larger. And we make it brighter for the people that come. 
yes, we have a lot. In half an hour, we could easily see between 30, 50 people. Wow. In half an hour? In, oh, yes. The, the other day I came, I went in, like we opened it, uh, we're open Tuesday and Fridays from 9 to 11. The other day as I was going in court to 9, there I have, we have a lineup to go our food bank, and we open it right away. And thank God the the organizations keep us in food, so we're able to handle a lot. And we're the only food organization in the city that hands out the meat to them. Where do you get your Where do you get your food from, Mary? We get from the local Catholic churches. I see. They donate it, and we have people go around and pick it up. And then at Thanksgiving, and again, now our next one is coming up at Christmas, we have a, a food drive. Uh, Kojiko is is our main sponsor. Mm-hmm. So we have a food drive. But then whatever we take in, we give back to those people. Like, you know... It may only be an extra loaf of bread or an extra quart of milk, but you're getting it. And they're so appreciative. Like, the gentleman the other day I had come in, and I was just checking his name, and I said, now, is your address still whatever? And he said, no, I've changed addresses. Oh, I said, well, what's your new address? He said, my car. Mm-hmm. Oh, but we've never turned anybody away. If they come in, they don't have proper ID or driver's license or whatever, we give them food. You it may not get the gate, the, if it was a family, you're not going to get that much, but you get food. Like the other day... Uh, the gentleman went through. He couldn't put the food in, the, in his backpack because the bottom was gone out of it. So there was myself and three or four other ladies in the building. We just chopped in. We said, how much would it be? So he gave us some rough ideas. So we said, okay, fine. And one of the girls said, here, I'm going. I'll go to Walmart. She took him with her. And got him a backpack. You do it. We didn't want to give him the money because we didn't yeah. think it would go. Yeah. Well, you can't be sure, but you certainly know if you give him a backpack, he's going to use it. And it sounded he like he uh, yes. needed and it. They're so appreciative. You are doing great work, Mary. Thank you very much. It's it's. Oh, well, thank ha- you very much. Heartwarming to hear, and I know, I know that there are people like you across the country who are involved in other organizations that are helping feed people and, uh, and you know, it's much appreciated. Thank you for calling. Well, thank you very much. Our number here on Cross Country Checkup is 1-888-416-8333. So that's 8333. And our text number is 226-758-8924. Have you used a food bank? How close are you to cutting back on groceries because of the escalating prices? Let's go way out to Bonavista, Newfoundland, where Pat Ricketts is. Hi, Pat. Hi there, Ian. 
So I see you 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 did use a food bank a while ago though between 2010 and 2012. What, what was the circumstance? Well, I was working on oil rigs, roughnecking minus 40, 12 hours a day, and I don't know. I burned out. I just couldn't take it anymore. Chasing somebody else's dreams, you know, mm-hmm. my parents or the people around me, and uh, yeah, I just ended up trying to find myself, I guess, and found myself on the back of freight trains on the way to San Francisco and. Working my way back up for about two years, I guess. Ended up in Vancouver for Occupy. We were, I was with Food Not Bombs. We, I think we were feeding a thousand meals a day on donated food. It was amazing. But hmm. I mean, if I didn't have those services, I don't know. The hunger pains would have been a lot worse, you know. Hey, let, 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 let me back up for a second. What was it like? You said, like, on a train, like you were basically, like, riding the rails all the way from Canada down to to California? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I just read about it, and, uh, you know, guys like Woody Guthrie and Mm -hmm. Hank Williams singing about it. It was just something that was in the heart, and, I don't know, I met a guy that he was doing it, I'd say, 15 years, and he kind of, for kind of gave up the telemarketing and real estate and stuff like that. He was diagnosed with cancer and he just said, you know what, I'm going to, going to travel. I know the show's about food banks, but I, I, I just, please like indulge me. Just going to ask you another question about that. Like I've heard, I mean, yeah, it sounds kind of romantic in a way, but I've also read it can be dangerous. You're, you're trying to stay a step ahead from, from like uh, security officers, but also people who might rob you. What what, what was, what was the lifestyle like? Well, if you're going to be stupid, be smart about it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, yeah, it's, you, you never know. You never know. I mean, People are getting crazier every day, and they were just as crazy then. But, man, I've had people give me the shirt off their back, literally, mm-hmm. you know? And they had nothing. They they had the shirt. That was it. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, and I've gone into places that look down their nose at you if you ask for a glass of water, you know? So there's there's definitely a disconnect going on. I mean, we see it everywhere. You know, the rich versus the poor or whatever's going on. And now people are being priced out of being able to eat, feed their children, or even have children. Like, it's it's disheartening, but I don't know. I guess with the pressure on, you're creating diamonds or you're breaking something, I guess. Pat, I I don't know what it's like in Bonavista, but... You know, if if when some when you're walking along and somebody asks you for money for food, given all that you've been through, what do you do? Oh, I have to. Yeah, I had a guy the other day. You know, a town of thirty five hundred people. He got kicked out of his place. He was homeless in a place you know where, I mean, fifty percent of the community is unemployed, and if you do work in a place like the the local fish plant, you're making. You know, after tax, fifteen dollars and forty cents an hour on average. That's not going to get you, you know, a loaf of bread and a, a carton of milk and maybe some eggs. It's insane. Then they call us heroes on the news. You know, yeah. so, so, you, so you, you you had challenges back, you know, thirteen years ago that that led you to using food banks. Now here we are in twenty twenty three, and and the you know one of the challenges is just the the escalating price of food. So how are you doing? Are you, do you still have to go to a food bank or what are you doing these days? Well, unfortunately I changed my life. I used to weigh 235 pounds and 
I worked that off on the boats and the rigs. I was on cargo ships of the Great Lakes before I went to the rigs. And yeah, I mean, I, I went from 235 to 145, throwing oh. around three or four times my weight. And I've kept it off over the over the years. And I mean, you're rich in what you can afford to live without, definitely. But, you know, it doesn't matter how rich you are. If bread's $2 million a loaf, when you go in the store, it's not going to be any good, is it? Boy, you could tell some stories, I'll bet you, um, of, of, of <laughs> your... I wish I could write them down. Yeah, no, no, no kidding. Um, thank you very much for calling. It's been really, really interesting yeah, talking no to you, Pat. Good to talk. Uh, yeah, thank you very Good much. to hear from all the other callers, too. Yeah, sure is. Um, let's see. We have somebody who uh, reached out to us via text. Simon Tutwala is in Airdrie, Alberta. Hi, Simon. Hi, thanks, Ian, for taking my call. Yeah, thank you very much for calling. I see you're a... You're a university student, and you're going to a food bank. Yeah, food bank is the only, unfortunately, the only source I, I get food. Because um, here in Alberta, I don't know other provinces, but in Alberta, the maximum amount a student can get um, a student loan, it is uh, $1,346 a mm-hmm. month. Mm-hmm. And the rent um, I have is, I couldn't find less than this. It is 1600 mm-hmm. a month. So how am I going to live? There's nothing else. Like, uh, there's, there's nothing I can buy. There's, there's no transportation. Nothing. There's, um, yeah, it affected so many of us uh, at a point that it affected my best friend who committed suicide uh, in September. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and there are so many other classmates I know who have a car, but they then they live in their car. So they hang out in the campus during the day and they try to sleep in their cars. So uh, there's no other way because you can't you can't balance this. It's either you pay with the rent, or do you want to buy food? So people who don't have car either, because insurance payment everything it just adds up. So there's no way. So we try it, like a group of students, we try it to reach out the National Student Loan of Canada, um, like the Alberta Student Aid, they said, it's not them who decided mm-hmm. to index this with the inflation and the housing crisis. They said, it is the politicians, if, if we don't have any power to look at indexing this. It is true, this is mm-hmm. not indexed in this, yeah. um, you know crisis but Simon are you able are are you are you in a position where you can work a little bit and and make a little bit of money that way I mean I I I try but like I take seven classes so like sometimes it is very hard to balance like um it depends on like uh what courses you're taking but for some students um it's a bit easier for them but for some students it is very difficult and like uh and the course I am in, if I don't maintain uh, a level, I will be kicked out of the course. So um, it's very competitive. So I just try to focus on the study because if I try, you know, to pick more hours or something like that, then I I am compromising, you know, the time I spend on the study. Then I I might end up getting B or you know or you know something like that less than a a grade mm-hmm. so that would that thing would even make the situation worse for yeah. me but i don't know maybe there are students who could do that but yeah i i am so okay. thankful to the 
to the people in the food banks who have been, you know, helping us. Um, because there's no other way I buy food. That's yep. the only way. If there's no food bank, I'm not going to leave, you know. Okay. Simon, thank you very much for uh, texting us at 226-758-8924. And then obviously we gave you a call back to hear your story. Our uh, next caller is Ontario, is in Ontario, Andrea uh, Charest. You know, it's funny, Andrea, to look at your last name, and I'm told it is pronounced Charest. Do I have that right? You betcha. Okay, excellent. And where are you? Uh, I'm located in Listowel, Ontario. Okay, and you are, let me just see, co-founder and current executive director of It Takes a Village Food Bank nonprofit organization. And what do you want to tell us about it? So, you know, Ian, first of all, just before we, we chat about it, I, I am so deeply moved by these stories that are coming in. And mm-hmm. I want to express my gratitude to people who are finding the courage and the strength and the resilience to reach out for, for support with food and many different things right now, because that's a huge ask. And um, and we are just in, in sort of unprecedented times right now. So for those of you who have reached out and who have shared your stories today, you have just moved my soul. So thank you for that. So Ian... It Takes a Village is a not-profit. We were started um, seven years ago. And just listening to sort of the different examples and, and different stories online, I just wanted to share, um, you know, our team sort of had to take a look at um, what models we felt might serve the community best. We're one of two uh, food um, access resources within the community. And um, what we really started to see, particularly after the pandemic, was quite an uptick in um, working uh, both single people and um, families. Um, we started to see an uptick in uh, men that were coming out and needing food security. Uh, stories like, and, and honestly, it was, it was profoundly humbling to hear these stories. But by example, um, you know, someone who's, uh, you know, marriage or relationship had ended, the children live with one parent, and the other parent uh, isn't able to see the children as much because the extra cost of groceries is bar taxing. So a lot of really, really important scenarios that we might not consider, um, people needing to come in over their lunch hour and that sort of thing. So we really, um, we figured out a model that uh, requires no identification so people can access food on a weekly basis. And out in front of our location is a stand called our Give and Take Stand. And we put um, food, fruits and vegetables, feminine hygiene, everything on there. So that's the first point of access. Mm -hmm. And people can just grab stuff and keep right on walking. So, you know, we try to look at that and say, you know, what what if, if that was us or, or if we needed to create an ideal model, what would that look like with dignity, with access? So so we've tried to kind of uh, take a look at that. So there's all these amazing models and each model um, works in its own unique way. But we've found that particularly for people who are working, that sort of um, nine to five business model is a challenge to get in and get mm-hmm. some food support. It's terrific, right? Like, like as, as you're speaking, it sounds to me like um, your organization is looking to distributing food for free the way that a for-profit supermarket looks to distribute food, right? Like to make the experience as pleasant and easy as possible for the person who's coming there. So whether you pay for it or whether you can't pay for it, you know, it's interesting that you're using that same approach to make it easy and to try to give people as much dignity as possible. But even in that setting, Andrea... Um, I feel like there, but you tell me, like, is, is there a, even the perception of a stigma that people have to overcome before they make that first visit? 
Absolutely. And that's, that is crushing. And, you know, um, we have a lot of youth groups that come in or classes and that sort of thing. And one of the things that we focus on is that ability we all have to change those stigmas and change the language, right? And one of the things that I ask um, the kids often is, you know, what does need look like? Because people will say, well, we know this organization is a place where you go when you're in need, but what does that even look like in this in this current state. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we need to reframe how, you know, in the lens by which we, we look at each other, we look at our community. If we're going to, you know, foster inclusion and strength and empowerment and, and just walk together as people, we really need to change that. So dignity has to be at the forefront all the time. And the most, um, you know, and, and the gentleman, I believe his name was Pat, and he was sharing his stories. Man, I would love to sit down with him and have a mug of coffee. I know. But, you know I know. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, but it's, uh, I was going to say, but it would sound too trite. I, I hope he has a good because like he's got a, a lifetime of songs uh, just in his stories, right? Absolutely, and and you know what I was thinking about when he was talking was. You know, I, I'm always so moved by the, the people who come back. We're independent, so, and we're not yet a registered charity, so we really depend on, on you know, people and a lot of other, other organizations that are independent do as well. But the, the thing that always, you know, is a, is, a, is a win in my soul is people who come back and say, look, I was there. And I know what it's like. What do you need me to do? Mm-hmm. So we have that power as people to just continue to to offer dignity and and to consistently walk together and give back. So so um, yeah. So I'm thrilled that you guys are talking about this today. And like I said, big love out to all the people who who are needing to access resources for food security, and to the people who are making a point of understanding the resources. Because sometimes you'll connect with someone who just needs you to be the one to say, Hey, I know about this place. You want me to go with you? Because that's going to make it a little easier too. I'm really happy that you called in, Andrea. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Take good care. This is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hannah Mansing in Vancouver. Reminder, our Ask Me Anything starts in about five minutes time. And uh, we have two experts coming in, one with uh, an area of expertise in humanitarian aid, the other in military uh, strategy and and, and just how uh, military campaigns work. And you can ask them about what uh, we know or what they're curious about in terms of uh, the Israel-Hamas war, in particular, what may or may not be happening in Gaza. You can use our, our regular numbers, one 416 8333 or text us 226-758-8924 for our Ask Me Anything. Before we get there, one more call. Um, Elise Sidock is in Elliott Lake. Hi, Elise. Hi. Or do I have that Hi. wrong? Is it Elise? Yes, it is. Okay. Yes. All right. Uh, Elise Sidock. Um so inflation pushing the price of food up higher and higher and higher. How are you coping? Well, uh, myself, I had to. Uh, I only shop uh, meat sales, and uh, I have to shop in, uh, from the uh, avoid the chain stores to buy some items. I, I uh, go shop in other stores that can provide the same item for. Uh, half the price. For example, I bought today. I bought an item that uh, in the chain store is seven twenty nine, and in uh, the other store was three dollars. Hmm. And um, I was listening to the senior VP of independent grocers saying that uh, don't blame transportation or or because the chain in the chain stores are are struggling uh, with prices. But I don't understand. Uh, the price gouging that's going between the two, the two uh, uh, places where I buy my food. 
Now, and, now he uh, would say he would say that there is not price gouging going on, right? That uh, that exactly. the, 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 that's the, what that's what he was saying. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I explained that to me, and that's not the only item because there's a lot of items that I can get at the other store. Um, this very same uh, at um, at least twenty five percent less. Mm-hmm. So, so listen, I'm not I'm not here to to defend uh, the grocery stores. I, I would just say no. that possibly the argument he would make, I think, is that you know there are going to be certain situations where a store may look at a product and say, okay, we got to get this off the shelves in the next day or two, so we'll put a deep discount on here, even though they end up selling it for maybe less than they normally would need to in order to, well, you know, to turn a profit. I don't know. I don't know. No, that, no, that is not that type okay. of situation with these stores. Um, and also I'm worried about the people that are like, even the people I working in chain stores are mm-hmm. using the, the food bank. Wow. Um, have yeah. things changed for you in the last year and a half, couple of years oh, time? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. I, I can't afford uh, the price inflation and also the uh, shrinkflation of uh, the items. Yeah. Um, that, so they, that, that portions are smaller than they were before and the price is yes. the same or even a little bit more and you don't even realize it. Um, oh, but, we, yeah. Yeah, we do realize it. Yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. No, you sound yeah. very, you know, a lot of the people who have called in, like you, sound very, very strategic and smart about how you shop. So, yeah, you absolutely would notice it. But I think so, not everybody does, right? Well, um, in my uh, area, um, we have no major uh, company, and the people here uh, depend on just the small jobs, a lot of them, for surviving. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're not. So, yeah. uh, you know, they have to choose between food, hydro, heat, uh, rent. Yeah, no, no, one, the, no one should have to choose between those uh, things. Yeah. yeah so, Elise, uh, thank you very much for yeah. calling in. Okay, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and, and to echo the caller before, uh, very appreciative of the people who've called in with their personal stories and uh, often, maybe always the case on Cross Country Checkup, you just hear some incredible stories from people. So we really appreciate that. It's time for Ask Me Anything on the Israel-Hamas War. This morning, the UN says refugees have broken into a warehouse in Gaza to take food and basic survival items. People are desperate, they are hungry, they have not received any food for the last couple of days. And this morning, an Israel Defense Forces spokesman said more troops are joining those already fighting inside Gaza. Our goal is a total victory over Hamas, to eliminate Hamas from the face of Earth. We are still waiting for word of a full-scale ground invasion of Gaza, but Israel is expanding its ground operation. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said yesterday the war was entering a second phase, which would include more ground assaults. Israel has continued airstrikes on Gaza, as well as sending troops into the enclave on nightly incursions. Uh, There were more than 450 Israeli airstrikes yesterday alone. And the internet, power and infrastructure have been affected in Gaza, basically shut down a day ago, a couple of days ago, and I guess some service has been restored. But all of this contributing to an unfolding humanitarian crisis there. More than 8,000 Palestinians have been killed since the Hamas attack early this month, according to Gaza's health ministry, which is controlled by Hamas. 
And I want to introduce two guests who are here to take your questions on what we are seeing right now in Gaza. And given how little direct information that we are getting, they may also be able to give us some sense of the questions they have um, and uh, and what likely might be happening even if we don't have a clear sense of that. Scott Clancy has been uh, a guest on the program a couple of times over the last few weeks. He's a retired major general with the Canadian Armed Forces, among other things, served as director of operations for NORAD. And we've reached him in Coburg, Ontario. And Dahlia Alakauti is the head of humanitarian affairs with Save the Children, a charity that supports children in crisis situations around the world, and it is operating in Gaza right now. We reached her in Toronto, and both are here live to take your calls and answer questions. You can ask them anything about the Israel-Hamas war. Our phone number, 1-888-416-8333. You can also text questions to 226-758-8924. Scott and Dahlia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for having me. Scott, let me start with you. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu held a news conference yesterday and he talked about, and I just mentioned this, the war entering a new stage and suggested what is to come. The ground offensive will be long and difficult. What stood out to you, uh, either in what he said or where the Israeli armed forces are right now? So a couple of things stood out for me, Ian. The first thing was, you know, he was speaking straight to the Israeli people. He's talking to them about this is a second war of independence. Uh, In such, you see the entire nation rallying behind the Israeli Defense Force. They might not be rallying behind him as the prime minister, but they're rallying behind the Israeli Defense Forces and the idea about defeating Hamas. So he spoke directly to that. The second thing, and it's not necessarily you know during the press conference, but immediately afterwards, you know, he was asked continuously to take responsibility for the actions of October seventh. I think he bears lots of responsibility, especially as a leader, as a senior leader within Israel, but more particularly of setting the conditions uh, that have led to this. So I think those are the two things that stood out for me in his press conference. Dahlia, internet and phone services are starting to return to parts of Gaza after the Israeli attacks uh, led to a communications blackout. Save the Children, your organization has a team operating there right now. Have you been able to get any information from them? We've been able to reach part of our staff. So some of our staff are accounted for, but there are still some staff that we're not able to reach uh, up to the moment. We've been getting information uh, throughout, with the exception of the communications blackout. But we have been getting information throughout from, from our teams, our colleagues in Gaza. We've also been getting it from colleague, for, from our partner organizations. We've been getting it, of course, from the same sources from the United Nations and their agencies that are working in Gaza. The situation is horrific. It is a catastrophe. We've been warning for weeks about an impending catastrophe. The catastrophe is here. I know your focus is on the people who live in Gaza and this catastrophe as you describe it, but I do want to ask you about your workers who are there. I mean, they're doing, you know, necessary work. It's what they sign up to do, but at the same time, uh, they're in a dangerous place. How does your organization balance the dangers with the importance of being there? It's really difficult. It's about the organization's ability to balance it, but it's also about the individual's ability to balance it and our staff's ability, really. Um, The staff that we're talking about like everyone else in Gaza, are displaced. They're in need. They're sleeping. They've they've talked to us about spending nights sleeping on the streets. Some of them are in designated shelters that were meant to host 200 people and are hosting over 20,000. Uh, so there's, there's definitely a very difficult balance, but there's also an imperative 
their humanitarian imperative to help people however they're able to. And that's certainly the place that our staff are coming from. That's certainly the place that our partners are coming from. And a lot of civilians in Gaza today are doing that. We are here live with Dahlia Alakauti, and uh, she's the head of humanitarian affairs with Save the Children, and Scott Clancy, a former major general with the Canadian Armed Forces. And in a few minutes, we'll go to the phone to take your calls. It's Ask Me Anything on the Israel-Hamas conflict, and our number is 1-888-416-8333. Scott, Israel has been launching some sort of uh, nightly ground attack into Gaza. That is a new stage in this uh, offensive. And, and, you know, throughout we've heard uh, Israel saying that there is going to be a major ground uh, incursion. Um, so given your expertise in military affairs, describe for us what you think is going on in terms of military strategy. It's a great question, Ian, because we don't have a lot of information as to exactly what's going on. The first thing is I don't think it's going to unfold like we would think a normal ground attack, let's say, in the Iraq war. This isn't going to be the shock and awe armored forces rushing forward and, you know, a few days later we see them occupying the entire territory. I don't think that's going to be like that as well. So the main question would be I have the Israeli forces that launched, you know, yesterday night that have remained inside of Gaza, is this just the first stage of a slow and deliberate assault that's going to go through the north and and then, you know, further on? I I think that it it quite possibly could be so that instead of having this, you know, large offensive with large armored forces that you're just going to see this slowly develop where the Israeli defense forces go block by block. Uh, So that has yet to be seen. The intensification of the artillery strikes and the fact that Israeli ground forces have left their staging areas and and have not gone back tends to lead me to believe that that is the case. Dahlia, thousands of people were told in Gaza this morning looted a United Nations warehouse looking for flour and basic hygiene supplies. Certainly understandable that people would do that, but it's also a troubling development uh, for a lot of people. The UN has said they, they worry that civil order, civil society is beginning to break down. And I wonder your reaction to this and also what it means for further humanitarian efforts on the ground in Gaza. I think it's really important to draw out the the basic context here. And Gaza is home to more than 2 million people. We have over a million people that have already been displaced. Over 60% of the population in Gaza were already refugees prior to this conflict, prior to this particular escalation in the conflict. 80% of that population already depended on aid. 500 trucks a day were coming into Gaza prior to 7th of October, carrying essential commodities like fuel and also humanitarian assistance. So we're talking about 100, approximately 100 trucks of pure humanitarian assistance that were coming into Gaza every single day prior to the 7th of October. And then we had weeks with absolutely no supplies, no fuel, no food, no water, and no medical supplies. So it's hard to say. It's, it's, it's you know, a breakdown of civil society, a breakdown of civil order. People need to eat. People need to survive. And they have been trying for weeks at this point to meet the basic needs of life. And to no avail, less than 100 trucks have been through with humanitarian aid. That's less than one day of assistance prior to 7th of October. This amounts to collective punishment. 
So the fact that they would go in search of food, in search of assistance, certainly that's very concerning that they would break into, you know, break into a warehouse. But how do people, how do we expect people to survive? What are we doing to make sure that assistance is going into Gaza? Because as I said, over 2 million people, 80% of whom already depended on aid to meet their basic needs for survival. And a sliver, not even a sliver of that has gone in in three weeks. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what to say other than to say, this is, you know, this is really quite the reality and, and it's not really surprising. Mm-hmm. And I should say to people who are listening and, and may feel that we're giving an unbalanced view of what's happening in Israel and Gaza, because we're not talking about October 7th. We're not talking about the atrocities that were committed by Hamas. But the focus of this program today is what is happening in Gaza with the beginning of of a ground incursion by the Israeli forces, the escalation, as far as we can tell, of of, of strikes from the air, and what uh, we're told is a preparation for a more significant ground operation. So if it sounds like we're only looking at part of the story in terms of the human suffering, it's because we are focusing today on what's happening in Gaza. Uh, our phone number on the Ask Me Anything is one 416 You can also reach us by texting us, 226-758-8924. And uh, let's go to our first caller. James Kahane is in Toronto. Hi, James. Hi there. Good afternoon, Ian. Thank Good. you for allowing me to uh, make a couple quick comments and ask the question. Sure. So, well, first of all, it's horrible to hear what's going on in that part of the world. Um, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, uh, announced, I believe it was yesterday, that uh, Hamas has below one of the largest hospitals in Gaza, Al-Shifa Hospital, their command and control, as well as hiding places for hundreds of their commandos. So, first of all, and apparently they have shared intelligence confirming that with uh, intelligence uh, personnel from various countries. Anyway, to the extent that that is true, how can uh, Israel uh, defeat Hamas with, uh, while being humanitarian, or would that constitute war crimes? Is there any precedent for wars where, uh, where parties are, are actually hiding under civilians to make it difficult for them to be uh, defeated. That is a great question, James. And I should say to our two guests who are here for the Ask Me Anything, I, I will sometimes just direct a question to, to one of you. Uh, but if the other wants to jump in after, by all means, uh, do that. But this does seem to be something that is uh, sort of in the area of expertise for Scott Clancy, a former Major General with the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, let's assume, Scott, that I mean that, that the Israeli information that they are sharing is correct and that Hamas is using a hospital as cover for underground, uh, like literally underground operations, how, to James's question, how does the Israeli army deal with that? that, that James, this is a 
Great question. Uh, you know, my my sister works for the Canadian Red Cross. So as a military guy, you could expect that we have had these exact conversations in the past. There is a precedent. And in accordance with international humanitarian law and the laws of armed conflict, no party may use schools, mosques, civilian uh, entities uh, in order to protect themselves. And if they do, now, technically speaking, they lose their protection under the Geneva Conventions. Now, that being said, nothing, nothing would uh, allow someone to attack civilian targets. But these become then dual-use targets, which means that that, in, that location is being used both for military and civilian purposes. In the past, Occidental countries like, like Canada and the United States in coalitions, when we've seen mosques or schools being used by Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS fighters. Uh, we have chosen to or not to attack those targets, even though they become valid military targets uh, based upon one, you know, the, the collateral damage that uh, could occur uh, based upon our assessments for how many civilians are there. And then and there's an element of proportionality that goes along with that. And then secondly, whether or not it makes sense from a larger uh, gaining of the military objectives. And, and this is where I think the Israeli Defense Forces is, is in a different space than most other militaries in that you know, we would not necessarily strike a mosque or a school, even if it's being used to launch attacks on us, because even the mere perception of doing something like that, it's just wrong, even though that it's a legitimate target. The Israeli Defense Forces have, you know, they're, they're fused with the idea of rooting out Hamas no matter where it is. And I think that's why they presented that information. I don't think it's a precursor to an attack directly on that hospital. But I think it's showing the world exactly what Hamas is, is willing to do with, uh, you know, flaunting the international laws. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, Scott, is I often think people who listen to a radio show may be gardening or driving, not paying full attention. When you describe the hospital as a uh, uh, legitimate target, I, I should say, you're, you're talking about the extent to which the hospital is being used by military people and they're using the hospital as a shield, right? Exactly. In this case, and this is where it's going to be very difficult. And I think the Israeli Defense Forces need to be careful. They're going to be judged by this. If it's subterranean bunkers below the hospital that they're actually using, and the above ground hospital effectively shields them from that, nothing takes away the responsibility on the Israeli Defense Forces or, or any other military force to use every other military capability to try and get after that objective, as opposed to going straight at it. And again, this is the problem space of dealing in a large urban environment with this enemy that doesn't doesn't care about using humans as shields. Scott Clancy, former Major General with the Canadian Armed Forces. We also have with us Dahlia Alicotti, who is the Head of Humanitarian Affairs with Save the Children, and they're here to answer your questions live on Ask Me Anything. Dahlia, is there anything you wanted to, to add uh, by way of answer on, on the hospital I issue? Absolutely. I think just to stress absolutely that there is a responsibility on all parties to a conflict to ensure the protection of civilians. Absolutely, without a doubt. Those parties, it, the, it is international humanitarian law. It is the Geneva Conventions. Um, I'll also add that we, we've heard a similar rhetoric, um, but I, I do want to stress that as we sit here today, over 3,195 children have already been killed. Over 1,000 are missing and expected to be trapped under the rubble. We're talking about fatalities in this escalation of the conflict that
that have exceeded 8,000 people, over 60%, I believe it's 63 or 68% at this point, are women and children. There is a huge civilian component to what is happening, and there is absolutely a need to protect that. And these, these numbers that we're talking about, these are just in Gaza. This does not reflect the scale across all the occupied Palestinian territory. All of the death here of, of civilians, of innocent people, and particularly of children, I mean, it is heartbreaking. I mean, the, the words don't do justice to it, but uh, all I can do is say how heartbreaking it is. I can't even imagine those numbers. I can't even imagine that that, uh, that number of children and, and, of course, heartbreaking in terms of the victims of the October 7th attack as well. Ian, if I can add something to put sure. those numbers in perspective, yep. when we talk about over 3,100 children dead... That is more than the annual total of children that have been killed in conflict since 2019. So in three weeks, we have had more children die than the annual total of children that have been killed in conflict zones. That is more than 20 countries, or assuming 20 countries, all in three weeks. So it's, 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 more, than, it's more than heartbreaking. It's more than tragic. It requires action. It requires people to to take action it requires Canadians to call their members of parliament to say that they cannot stand for this. They cannot uh, stand for this treatment. Let me ask this question delicately. Um, but, you know, in the fog of war, it doesn't matter which side, things sometimes get uh, misunderstood or miscommunicated or even exaggerated sometimes for propaganda reasons. Are you, are you the information you have with Save the Children, you're fairly confident that those numbers are accurate? I have been in the field of humanitarian response and emergency response for over 15 years. This is the first time I've seen doubt cast on the numbers of dead. These are not just the numbers that we're seeing. These are also the numbers that the United Nations are reporting. These are the numbers. This is what we see. If you look through social media, if you look on the news, there's absolutely no doubt that the civilian deaths, that the number of children that are dying, that the impact of this war is absolutely incredible. And we hear it from our staff. We hear it from our partners. And without a doubt, what is happening today is unprecedented. We have not seen the scale. I have worked in over 10 conflict zones. I have never, ever seen this. I've been in Libya. I've been in Iraq. I've been in Mosul after it was retaken. This is something I've never seen before. And the fact that they're not able to access basic needs of life it's more than fog of war. We can't just say it's the fog of war. This is numbers, families, people, children, some as young as seven days old yeah. that are and, killed. And, and to, you know, uh, when I say fog of war, I just mean in terms of verifying numbers. That's all. I was asking you how confident you are that the numbers you're quoting are accurate and you are very confident of that. So I, I'm, I'm glad I had a Absolutely. chance to ask that question. Um, our number here on the Ask Me Anything is one 416 We have a call from St. John's, Newfoundland, Saad Rajput. Hi, Saad. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm, I'm well. What, what's your question? Uh, the question that I have, I'm, I'm going to come to it in a second. I think uh, uh, I do apologize if I get a little bit emotional. Uh, I'm a new father. I'm a two-year-old, and it's uh, um, it's heartbreaking the pictures that are coming out of Gaza, um, and it's heartbreaking what happened on 7th of October because civilian deaths are 
just not uh, something that I want to see. Uh, and I'm sure most listeners would agree. I keep looking at my little girl uh, when these pictures are scrolling across uh, social media and videos of people burying uh, their loved ones, uh, especially the children, because that's what gets to me. Um, I, I also think that, uh, uh, unfortunately, because of this war, uh, the process, uh, the peace process in the Middle East is uh, is decades away. If uh, in there, Canada had a proud history of being a peacekeeper, peacekeeper and peace broker, and I think uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and I, I, I voted for him. Uh, has betrayed that responsibility by standing by as collective punishment is dished out on uh, the Palestinian, especially Palestinian children. Uh, there is a international norm called uh, R2P, Responsibility to Protect, um, which basically um, asks the international community to prevent mass atrocities, um, war crimes, and things like that. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, my question is, is the Trudeau government abdicating its responsibility under R2P by not asking for a ceasefire in Gaza, um, especially because it's not just Palestinian civilians we, which, who we should care about just as much, but there are also Canadian civilians who have charter rights. Saad, thank you very much for your question. Uh, It's an excellent question. It is a question about politics and uh, political accountability. Our our experts are respectively uh, uh, experts in sort of humanitarian aid and military. So I'll just ask uh, our two uh, guests, do either one of you want to answer that question? I totally understand if you feel it's outside your area of expertise, or maybe you do want to answer it. Yeah, sure. I, I can take an initial stab yep. at it and then meet Dahlia, I'm sure, has a great uh, perspective on it as well. Yeah, R2P, uh, you know, this is a Canadian thing. Uh, responsibility to protect was a result of one of our ministers of foreign affairs uh, initially brought in not just uh, to protect against war crimes and things like this, but to give UN peacekeeping forces the ability and the responsibility, even from a moral perspective, to protect civilians, regardless of what the mandate of the mission was. Uh, there's a lot of this that came out of our operation inside of Bosnia, where we had one specific, or Rwanda, where we had one specific operation, and uh, you know it might have prevented us from uh, expanding our military operations, even though the UN mandate had had not have. Uh, done that. What the Trudeau government has done is been, you know, playing this fine line between uh, responsibility of the government of Israel to protect its uh, population. And I'll tell you, the Israeli government sees this very clearly. You know, my contacts inside the Middle East and in and around the Israeli government are, are saying this is very clear. It, a ceasefire to them means that we are turning our backs on the atrocities of October 7th. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. What I'm saying is that's how it's perceived. And to them, they must defeat Hamas. They will take care of all of the rest of the things that have to be done with the Palestinian people after Hamas is defeated. And for for them, they'll say, hey, the aid will go in, but why are not just, just release all of the uh, all of the hostages just allow the foreign nationals to leave via the Rafah gate and, and Hamas is not allowing them to do that. I think that the Trudeau government, that's the reason why they, they still see that responsibility uh, as being sovereign, uh, an important thing for the Trudeau government to support. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll provide that over to Dahlia. Yeah, thank response. you. And, and Dahlia, we have about two minutes left uh, in the program, but uh, could you weigh in please? Yeah, I think uh, it's a really great question. I, I think if I just want to address where we're shrinking, we, you know, we are shrinking our responsibilities. We are not holding parties to the war accountable. Um, if we are genuinely concerned, we would be 
asking for a ceasefire. Um, and we would be asking, as individual Canadians, we would be asking our government to be um, demanding a ceasefire right now. Uh, and people can go to savethechildren.ca to learn more and to contact their MPs. Um, and we're also part of a coalition, uh, the humanitarian coalition that also has a statement around this um, and is fundraising and they can go to, to together.ca. Uh, but there is an absolute responsibility to protect civilians. There is a responsibility on warring parties. And then within the international community, as the government of Canada, I have seen so many great examples of where Canada has really stepped up on the protection of civilians, on the protection of human rights. And I do not see that now. Delhi, we have just one minute left. Uh, I'm curious, what is, given the lack of uh, flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza, what in a minute, if you may, uh, what can save the children do in Gaza? What, what are you able? What are your workers able to do? We're able to do very small targeted assistance. Um, so, with whatever depleted supplies are left, we're able to get them to the people that need them. We also are able. We were able to get um, one truck, so forty-five thousand bottles of water into Gaza today. We have a second truck truck that we're hoping to clear. Um, the checks in the coming days, but this is this pales in, in comparison to what's needed. Mm -hmm. So much suffering, and um, I, you know, I, I do appreciate both of you uh, your analysis, and I think it's very helpful the answers you provided on our questions. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Dalia Alakauti is the head of humanitarian affairs humanitarian affairs with the charity Save the Children, and Scott Clancy is a former major general with the Canadian Armed Forces. And that's it for Checkup the Podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkups live broadcast on CBC Radio from October 29, 2023. If you'd like to share comments or appear on the show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners, Chuck Molgat, Kiata Greco, and Theo Van Busicom. Special thanks to the teams at BC Today and Alberta at Noon. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Brendan Sylvia, Josh Raxa, and Sean Foss. Technical production and editing from Will Yar and Matthias Wilson. Program assistant is Hannah Abrahamsey. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Abby Plenner, Steve Howard, and Kate Helmore. Digital producer is Paul Hanchuk. The senior producer of the program is Richard Goddard, and I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Checkup, the podcast, will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.